got Bibles right there in front of you. You want to grab one? Open up to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, in chapter 6. We've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount most of the summer. And the next two weeks, we'll land the plane, finish up with chapter 7, and, and uh, start a new study uh, after that. But we have talked about how a sermon of Jesus, he took his disciples up with him on the side of a mountain, and a, a crowd gathered around. In, in hearing distance to listen in, and he was describing for them what it looked like to to live the kingdom life. He describes the character of a disciple in, in the first of chapter 5, then he goes on in, in 5 and to, to describe what the law is all about, that it, the law was never meant to be a ceiling of all you had to do, but a floor of, of which to launch into uh, to doing righteousness, to, to, doing, to walking in the way of the Lord. And then in chapter 6, he starts into talking about some obstacles to, to life in the kingdom, whether it be selfishness and doing things for the approval of men, or what we talked about last week, storing up treasures on earth rather than in heaven, and uh, serving mammon rather than God. And then today, we're going to look at the third obstacle before moving into the last part of the sermon. And that third obstacle is worry or anxiety. My guess is that we don't have to talk a whole lot for us to understand and realize that worry is a big problem for most of us. It's something that is uh, it's easy to do, and it's easy to see in retrospect, but in the midst of it, it's hard to, uh, to realize that, that that's what we're doing rather than trusting in the Lord. I'm going to read Matthew verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And then we'll get started. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray one more time. God, will you open the, the teaching of your word, and you would uh, open our hearts to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was watching one of those medical shows, one of the many that come on TV in the evenings, and uh, there was a, it always gets you all kind of worked up because you get into the stories and the drama, and they usually try to piece the different stories together in one kind of theme that they're, they're trying to get across during the, during the show. And in this particular show, it had uh, several different stories going on at the same time that dealt with severe pain. And people, patients, trying to do anything they could to escape 
that pain. Had one little boy that kept trying to, he kept getting off his bed and going and hiding, and they'd have to search for him and find him, and just a couple of different stories like that. But the, one of the main characters of the show was this little girl who showed up with just bruises all over her body. And they initially thought, hey, this is an abuse victim. And so they had the social workers called in, and they're dealing with the dad and the parents and trying to figure out what's going on. And he's saying, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything. This is my girl you're talking about. And long story short, by the end of the show, you realize that this girl, of course, in a medical show on TV, has one of these rare diseases, you know, that nobody else ever hears about where she cannot feel pain. And as a way to, to show her, her strength on the playground, she would go up to these bullies and say, go ahead, you know, punch me in the stomach. I can take it. And she had these guys just using her for sport on the playground, and she was just taking all these punches, so much so that she'd been bleeding internally, and that's where she'd gotten all these bruises. And on the operating table, at the end of the show, kind of to sum up what the message of the show is about, one of the lead doctors is talking to one of the other doctors in the operating room, and she's just shaking her head, and she said, I just don't know. People just don't get it. They don't realize that pain is given for a reason, that God gives us pain to show, her, to show us that there's something deeper wrong that we need to get to the root of. The same can be said of many things in the Christian life, of these outward evidences that the Lord gives us that are screaming to us, hey, there's something deeper going on here that you need to pay attention to. And I think that's the case with something like worry. When we feel ourselves getting knotted up with concern over something more than maybe the situation even allows, it, it, it can be used even in our sin, it can be used as a grace of God to point to something deeper, an idol maybe on a deeper level of our hearts that he's trying to root out, draw our attention to, to wake us up to uh, so that we can do business with him. That's where I want to start, of the sin beneath the sin. Where does worry point? And I think this passage, as we go through it, will tell us that there's at least three deeper sins that worry is a symptom of. Worry points, first of all, to an unhealthy desire for our reputation. An unhealthy desire for our reputation. When I was in seminary, I... Uh, took a part-time job at uh, a, a large bank, a large banking chain in St. Louis and all across the country. They have, have, uh, uh, have places, but um, part of the draw was that as a seminary student, you could work part-time, and they pay full benefits. It was a great situation, and so I was like, hey, this is a great way for me to, to earn some money, have benefits, and finish school this last year and a half or two years or so of seminary. Uh, well, it was a job as a teller. And I thought, you know, that's no big deal. I can count money. You know, I, can, I, I got an engineering degree. I can add. Um, this will not be a big deal. But it didn't take me long to realize there's, number one, there's a lot more to it than just that as a job as a teller. And number two, I was terrible at it. There was more than one occasion where a customer left with an extra $100 or so. And for me to only find out at the end of the day that my drawer's not balancing, what happened to this $100 that should be here? Um, and somebody was happy that I was probably was actually well-liked as a teller um, for, for mistakes like that. But there was also the expected sales goals that I was supposed to meet with credit cards and things like that that just wasn't me. I've never been in, in, the, in, in that kind of realm very good. 
especially if it's something like credit cards that I don't necessarily like or agree with or, or uh, am passionate about. And there came to a point a few months in that I, I mean, I was just dreading getting up, going to work every day. Not necessarily because the people were bad or anything like that, but just because I stunk at this job. And I lived in constant fear of my reputation. And it came to a point a few months in that I had to come to grips in, in dealing with the Lord of, Eric, what's the worst that can happen here? And my answer came back from within, you get fired. <laughs> and, you know, and then I, I was able to talk with myself and say, well, is that the end of the world? You know, you're dealing with the fact the bigger deal here is that you don't want to be known as a failure. Your reputation is on the line, and you don't want anybody out there to know that you're not good at something. <laughs> and surprise, you're not, you know. Uh, well, that's where worry points a lot of times. It points to the fact that maybe we've got an unhealthy stake in our own reputation. We don't want think people to think bad of us. Number two, not only reputation, but it can point to an unhealthy desire for security. I think this is where I personally struggle with the desire for, for money. I want to have, uh, you know, I had somebody advise me early on, hey, you need an emergency fund of, of this, this kind of an amount so if anything comes up, you can, you know, um, you can pay for it and not, not have to, to worry and things like that. And that's great advice. But I become a slave to my emergency fund so much so that I worry when there's not that exact amount in a, in a, in a bank account because I know things are going to happen. They always do. And the Lord continues to keep that fund depleted. And I think it's part of him pointing out, hey, that's an idol. It's not just the, the money. It's the security that you're placing in that rather than in me. I counsel, uh, I do premarital counseling for young couples that have come through our ministry and are getting married. And it's a joy. So one of the parts of my job that I really, really enjoy. But so many of those couples are struggling physically. And it's not just the mere sensual draw of, of, of physicality. But it's, for, for many of them, especially the girls, it's this idea of it, it's security. I know if we have this physical relationship, I get some sense of security that, he, he loves me. You know, he's not going to leave me. He's going to follow through with this engagement and really, you know, go through with it and marry me. And we have to deal with, hey, maybe what you should try to do the next six months is just take a total break and you learn how to communicate to her, rather other than physical stuff, your love for her so that she feels secure in that. And that you stop looking for that to that for security and start looking to the Lord. So worry can point to reputation, it can point to an unhealthy desire for security, and three, it can point to an unhealthy desire for control, unhealthy desire for control. If you're worrying about something, odds are it's a sense of, I want control and I don't have it in whatever this situation is. A few years ago, and I've told this story to, um, to the First Presbyterian members before, but a few years ago we had a storm come through and uh, a, a couple of tornadoes came through, and uh, it did a ton of damage on really a street that is just behind where our, our, my cul-de-sac is that I live on. And, uh, and so we, we woke up in the middle of the night. You know, power was out, everything else, and, you know, you could hear it. It was just, you know, craziness going on outside. On top of that, at that time, our third child was, was a, a baby, and he, we, when, I, when the power went out, I went in there to check on him, and he had this crazy high fever. And, I, I, you know, we didn't have 
anything prepared in the house. We didn't have Tylenol. We didn't have thermometer that was working with the battery, everything else. I just knew it was really high. And uh, I picked him up to, to carry him outside to, to, to get Annette to take a look at him, and he went into a, a seizure, a fever seizure. And he stopped breathing for about, you know, 20 seconds probably is all it was total. But it obviously scared me to death. I was about to get to the point uh, in my panic of starting uh, CPR when he did this kind of <gasps> and started breathing again. And, you know, I, I've, I've talked to, to pediatricians since then, and he said, hey, that's, that can happen. And it's usually, you know, usually they do exactly what you just described, and, and they, you know, that never happens again. But, um, and he never has any, anything from that. But at that moment, I have never in my life felt as out of control. Um, when he came to again, uh, you know, I, 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 we called a doctor. He said, you know, watch him, you know, give him a, a cold bath and go get some ibuprofen. Well, trees were down, you know, over roads. And I ended up probably traveling about 30 minutes out of the way to get to the only store that I knew of, uh, a Walmart way outside of town, to get some ibuprofen and get back. And uh, it came down and he was fine. But every time after that, that a storm comes through, there's this sense in me that wells up because of memories associated with that time of I'm out of control in that situation. You know, it, it just impresses on us how little control we truly have. And that's where worry comes. Uh, it's, a, it's a pointer to, hey, maybe you've gotten a healthy desire for your reputation. Maybe you've got this unhealthy hope in security that you can, can have and, and attain for yourself. Or maybe you've got an unhealthy desire for control of your circumstances or of a person or whatever it is, and God is saying, hey, pay attention. Pay attention to this outside thing, this worry, because it's pointing to something deeper. But what does Jesus command in this passage and how to deal with worry? Well, the first thing that he says is not real encouraging. The first thing he says is, don't do it. <laughs> um, and you hear that, and you're like, well, okay, but that's hard. You know, how do I not do it? And he, well, he says, well, just don't. And he says it over and over a few times. I was in a meeting with um, some men a few weeks ago, and one of the men in the meeting had been showing patterns of a, of a sin uh, over a period of years, and one of the other men looked at him in love. And I, I was just amazed just sitting back watching this happen. But another man of the men looked at him and just said in love, hey, you've done this several times over the years, and it is not right. You need to stop. And there was intense silence in the room. But what was he doing? And he was, he was, again, he loved this guy, but he was saying, you don't need to do that. Sometimes that's what we need to hear. In the midst of our, 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 our sin that we just kind of get worked up in, we need to hear, hey, first of all, don't do that. But Jesus doesn't stop there at don't. He goes on to say many reasons of why we don't do that. And let's look at the passage, 25, uh, the second part of 25. He says, uh, if I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body or what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's saying, listen, life is, more, is, is about more than just food and clothes. He's doing this argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, hey, take life. Life is bigger than these things that you tend to worry about. And if you worry about food and clothing, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be so many other things you can fill in to, fill, to complete that list. So he's saying, hey, don't do that. 
Because number one, life is more than just that. Number two, in verse 26, he says, look at the birds. God cares for the birds. And again, not now greater to lesser, but now his argument is from lesser to greater. If God cares about these little creatures, how much more will he care about you? And he, interestingly, in the birds, you know, he says they don't sow, they don't reap or gather into barns and, and stock up. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. He's pointing there to some of those same idols we just talked about. Hey, they don't have security. They don't have an emergency fund over here. Hey, they're not concerned about their reputation. What are people going to think about them? They don't store up. They're not concerned about control. Actually, they don't have any control. You can watch the birds out of your, your, your back window and just watch them. You know, rain comes and they go find some worms or my little two-year-old comes by and leaves a trail of crumbs and there's a provision for them, you know. God takes care of them, and they're not worried about these security or his control or his reputation. They know more than we do a lot of times. They're trusting that their, their God is going to provide for them. 27, he says another reason. He says worry doesn't accomplish anything. How many of us have spent countless hours and days worrying about something and only to find at the end of it that it hasn't accomplished anything? Um, except for to get us worked out, and maybe to, to instead of giving life, maybe it takes a few days off of our lives. Um, worrying doesn't accomplish anything. If anything, it takes. In verses 28 and 30, he says another thing God, uh, to, to consider, reasons why not to worry, is God cares for not just the birds, but he cares for the flowers. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they gr uh, grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Talk about reputation. Here's flowers who know that they're more beautiful than even Solomon in all of his uh, uh, splendor. They don't worry about their reputation because they're trusting in the God that, that, that makes them that gives them their beauty. And then 32, he says, not only that, but the last reason you shouldn't worry is that God knows your needs. God knows your needs. Listen to how it says in verse 32, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. I think one of the things about worry that's so hard is we hear about other people's circumstances and situations, you say, yeah, I get that. I hear your story, but mine's different. <laughs> if you only knew all the circumstances that I'm dealing with, you wouldn't understand why I worry. Jesus is saying, hey, God knows them all. God knows. Your friend may not know and understand completely. Your family may not know and understand completely. God knows. He knows everything. So don't do it. Don't worry. So we see where worry points to these, these idols, we see what Jesus commands, hey, don't do it, and here's the reasons why. But we can also see in the scriptures um, what Jesus provides. And it's pointed to in 6.33, uh, he says, here's the, here's the solution of what I, I can provide for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. All of these things will be given to you. All these things that the Gentiles worry about and seek after and that you tend to worry about and seek after, hey, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Um, that term for righteousness 
I've been studying a lot in the Old Testament of God's mission through, uh, through the Old Testament and how it's culminated in Jesus. And that term righteousness comes up a lot in God's dealings with Abraham and, and, and the family and the nation that comes from him. And it really means it can mean a couple of things that, that kind of you put it together and it full, fills the picture out for you. First, it means following in the, the, the footsteps of somebody. And I've told this story um, probably too many times. I was joking with the Rons earlier that my mom was my kindergarten teacher. And, you know, at one day she just had enough of us. I'm sure we had just, you know, pushed all her buttons. And she said, we are going to march from the, the building to the playground, and we're going to do it in a straight line. And here's how you do it. You put your footsteps right where the person in front of you footsteps left off, and you'll, you'll stay in a, a straight line. And matter of fact, if you step out of line, there's going to be some consequences. Well, I did what my mom asked me. You know, as a good little student, I just put my feet exactly where this little girl in front of me had left off. She stepped out of line. I followed right where her footsteps were. She stepped back into line, and my mom turned around, and she saw me out of line. And so guess who got a spanking? Um, I give my mom a hard time about that um, often and remind her of that. But that's the picture, really, of, of righteousness. Hey, imitate, God's saying, hey, imitate me. Imitate my ways. Put your feet where I put my feet. Reflect my character in this way. That's what righteousness is. The other picture is of somebody giving you a, a detailed map so that you won't go off the way over here or off the way over here. He's saying, hey, walk in my way of righteousness, the right way. What's the norm, what I've designed things to be? And so Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry. That's not normal. That's not reflecting or dependence upon me, a trust in me. Seek first my kingdom and my way and trust in me, and I'll add these things to you. And the reason we can know that that's going to happen and have some guarantee of it is because of the one that's saying it. The one that's speaking these words is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and Paul speaks of it in Philippians in a little bit different way that fills out the picture. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is what he says. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. And then there's a phrase there. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's something that this speaker of this sermon has done, has accomplished for us, that gives meaning to these words. Hey, seek first, don't worry, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I got it. All of these things are going to be added into you. I will take care of you. Two things I've been doing in the last couple of years with Scripture that's really opened up God's word to me. One is what we just did, looking at the sin beneath the sin. And looking deeper to say, well, what is the symptoms of worry? Where's that pointing? And the second thing is taking different aspects of what Jesus has accomplished before me, before us, and unpacking that and applying that to situations like this. And when I tried to do that yesterday, I took just the aspect that we talk about of what Jesus has done for us, and when we say that He is our Redeemer, He is a redemption. And as God would have it, I actually opened up uh, another book to study for another lesson, and I learned 
Old Testament-wise what a redeemer is all about. In Old Testament times, a redeemer had three possible meanings. Number one, if somebody in your family had been murdered and it was not by accident, it was a premeditated, uh, vengeful act, then somebody in your family had to step up as the redeemer and go avenge your blood. Go take care of your reputation of what had been done for you and make amends. And all that that means. That was the first thing. Number two, a redeemer could be somebody who, if you went into debt, if you didn't have the crop that you, you planned or whatever else, and you couldn't pay your bills, and you were in danger of having to sell your land and maybe your family and yourself into bondage or into slavery, a redeemer or the kinsman, person from your family, would come along and say, nope, I'm going to buy that land. You can, I'll set you free. You can continue to work it. Continue to, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to... I'm going to buy this back. I'm going to buy your family back from slavery, from the verge of, of debt and slavery, and you can be a part of my family. Or number three, and this is a little bit of an odd one, but it's the one that's pictured in, in the story of Ruth, where Ruth is, is a widow who has no son. And in, in, in that culture, in that day and age, um, the name of a family, the firstborn, was basically your security. The, the firstborn was, was to provide for you. He was to, to receive all the inheritance of the family and carry on the family name and provide. So if a, if a husband died, if they had a firstborn, things were okay because the inheritance would pass to him and it would stay in the family and the widow would be provided for. But if she had no son, then it's dangerous. What's, what's going to become of her? Where a kinsman would step in and have a son by this widow so that the inheritance could pass um, on to the family. It wasn't that somebody picked up um, necessarily excitedly. It was a duty. It was something that, that had great responsibility associated with it to provide for this, your brother's wife. Unbelievable pictures of a redeemer. But, but watch what happens when you apply it to a passage like this. Do we worry about our reputation? It says Jesus is our redeemer. Have you been wronged? Are you worried about what people are going to think of you out there? The Son of God has come to earth and lived a life and died on the cross to purchase your reputation. Your reputation is now in Him. You don't have to worry about it. It's guaranteed. You're a child of God. Are you worried about security? The Son of God has come and lived on this earth the perfect life, done everything you couldn't do, and then by His death on the cross and resurrection, He's bought you back from the slavery to sin. You... Don't owe a debt anymore because he's paid it. He can give you that control and that security that you so lack. Do you have a debt to control? Are you worried about what's gonna, where your next meal is going to come from, how the Lord's going to provide for you, what your inheritance is going to be? The Son of God has come to earth. He's lived a life that you can't live. He's died on the cross to pay punishment for your sin so that he can own you as a child and pass on the inheritance of his son to you he's our redeemer and so when he says don't worry when he says seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you don't be like those who don't know me the gentiles be like people that do know me and realize what all that means for you 
And not only will I give you the solution to your problem, but I'll give you the power to not worry anymore. As you do what Paul did in prayer and supplication, bring these things to the Lord and lay them at his feet, the peace of God, which is beyond all of our understanding, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us. If you don't know him, you've got a lot of reason to worry. If you do know him, trust in him and let the peace of God guard your hearts and your minds because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Let's pray. God, you know, like you just said in your word, you know what our needs are. You know all of them, even when nobody else understands. You know the things that burden us, that keep us awake at night, that cause anxiety and stress. Um, God, sometimes it points to idols of reputation or security or control. And God, we pray that we'd be able to do, because of what Jesus has done for us, what you call us to here, to give those things to you, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, to trust in you, and to have all these things added to us um, because we are resting and trusting in you and not trying to accomplish these things ourselves. Root out these root sins and press upon us the sweetness of what Jesus has done for us as our Redeemer. May it cause us to love you more and to trust you more and to obey you by not worrying this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.